1: Welcome to the London Review Bookshop. Yesterday I noticed that Ali's publisher had tweeted a picture of a rather sort of, how can I say this, kind of battered, perhaps seen slightly better days, slightly um, been around the block a few times, portfolio. And he said, this is the portfolio in which Ali has delivered every single one of her books. And I thought that is just... Ali, totally. She goes into these incredibly grand offices on the <laughs> Strand with this sort of... It's such a bit like Iris Murdoch with her carrier bag. With
0: her sort of, There's an idea. With her sort
1: of, in this okay. case, though, she goes in, she has this portfolio, and she doesn't say, here you go, go off. She says, what I'd like you to do is print this, print it two ways, split the print run, divide it, send some books here, send some books there, create an ebook that has and she creates this extraordinarily sort of Tech savvy book, which we will discuss in great detail. Um, you're going to read from both parts mm. of of How to Be Both. Um, as you probably all know, it's a book that comes in two parts, which you can read in either order. It's up to you. It's kind of fantastically exciting. Um, I'm going to hand over to you, Ali. Then we're going to talk about the book, all your other books, and have some questions.
0: Okay. Thank you, Alex. Uh, it's um, really lovely for me to to be sitting next to Alex. Because she is, I just think she's such a great critic. I just think that in, in, in a world where our critics are few and far between, Alex is such a great critic. She's just the best. Anyway, but she does like my book, so I would think that. <laughs> okay, if I'm, I'm going to read to you from this book, which does come in two forms. When I did take that battered portfolio to the office this time, I couldn't actually get both the forms into it. I was kind of having to hold both the sides of it together to, to carry both versions in with me. Um, uh, um, but we did it. We got it. We tied it with... Bits of string, didn't we? Um, and I got it in in the same old portfolio. Um, because it's in two set versions, this book. Um, which half would you like me to start with? <laughs> We're going to have a vote. I
1: mean, that's kind of how we need you, to do you it. You want isn't
0: it? The, sec- the second? Mm-hmm. You would like me to start with? Okay, I'm going to for, okay. for, for Charlotte, who's sitting at the front. I'm going to um, start with the second half of this book. I've got in my hands. Okay. Oh, this is a mighty twisting thing, fast as a fish being pulled by its mouth on a hook. If a fish could be fished through a six-foot-thick wall made of bricks, or an arrow, if an arrow could fly in a leisurely curl like the coil of a snail, or or a star with a tail, if the star was shot upwards past maggots and worms and the bones and the rockwork, as fast coming up as the fast coming down of the horses in the story of the chariot of the sun, when the bold boy drove them, though his father told him not to, and he did anyway, and couldn't hold them. He was too small, too weak. They nose-dived, crashed to the ground, killed the crowds of folk in a field full of sheep beneath, and now me falling upwards at the rate of forty horses. Dear God, old father, mother, please spread extempore whatever I'm meant to be hitting, whatever your target beg and your pardon urgent, a flock of the nice, soft, fleecy, just to cushion, ow, what the, just caught my, what, on a, ouch, dodged a, whew, biff-bash, ow, mercy. Wait, though, look, is that sun, blue sky, the white drift. The blue through it, rising to darker blue. Start with green, blue underpaint. Add indigo under lazurite. Mix in lead, white or ashes, glaze with lapis. Same old sky, earth again. Home again, home again. Jiggity down through the up like a seed off a tree with a wing. Because when the roots on their way to the surface break the surface, they turn into stems and the stems push up over themselves into stalks. And up at the end of the stalks, there are flowers that open for all the world like eyes. Hello. What's this? A boy in front of a painting. Good. I like a good back. Best thing about a turned back is the face you can't see stays a secret. Hey, you. Can't hear me? Can't hear? No, my chin and your shoulder right next to your ear and you still can't hear. Well, old argument about eye or ear being mightier all goes to show it's neither here nor there when you're neither here nor there. So call me Cosmo, call me Lorenzo, call me Ercole, call me unknown painter of the school of whatever you like. I forgive you. I don't care. I don't have to care. Good, somebody else can care. Because listen, once, an old man slept for winters tucked in a bed with my Marcius. Early work, gone forever. Linen, canvas, rot, stiff with colours on top of his bedclothes. He hadn't many bedclothes, but my Marcius kept him warm. Nice, heavy, extra skin. Kept him alive, I think. I mean, he died, yes, but not till later. And not of the cold, see? No one remembering that old man, except I did. I just did. There, though very faint the colours now, can hardly remember my own name, can hardly remember any th- though I do like I did like a fine piece of cloth and the way the fall of a ribbon bit off a shirt or sleeve or twist as it, it falls and how the faintest, lightest nearly not there charcoal line can conjure a sprig that splits open a rock and I like a nice bold curve and a line. His back has a curve at the shoulder a sadness, or just the eternal age-old sorrow of the initiate, put beautifully, though I say so myself. Oh God, dear Christ, and all the saints, that picture, he's, it's mine. I did it. Who is it again? Not St. Paolo, though. St. Paolo's always bald, because bald's how you're supposed to do St. Paolo. Wait, uh, yes, I think uh, the face, the... Because where are the others? Because it wasn't just it, it was a piece belonged with others. Someone's put it in a frame, very nice frame, and the stonework in it, Uh aha, the cloakwork, good, no, very good, the black of it, to show the power. See how the cloak opens to more fabric where you'd expect flesh to be, that's clever, revealing nothing. And a small forest of baby conifers tucked on the top of the broken column behind his head. What about the old Christ at the top of it? Old? Christ? Like he made it, after all, all the way to old man when everyone knows Christ is never to be anything other than unwrinkled eyes shining, the hair the colour of ripe nut from the hazel tree unparted neatly in the middle like the Nazarenes, straight on top falling curlier from the ears down, countenance more liable to weep than laugh, forehead wide, smooth, serene, no older than thirty-three and still the most beautiful child of men. Old man, Christ, why would I paint an old blaspheming? Wait, because I think I remember something. Yes, I put some hands, two hands, below his, uh, I mean, capital H, his feet. Something you'd only see if you really looked. Hands that belong to the angels, but all the same look like they don't belong to anyone. Like they're corroded with gold. Gold all over them, like sores turned into gold. A velvet soup of gold lentils. Gold mould, as if blisters of the body can become precious metal. But why on earth did I? Can't remember. Okay, okay. That was the beginning of part one. Here's the beginning of part one. (laughs) Consider this moral conundrum for a moment, George's mother says to George, who's sitting in the front passenger seat. Not says, said. George's mother is dead. What moral conundrum, George says? The passenger seat in the hire car is strange, being on the side the driver's seat is on at home. This must be a bit like driving is, except without the actual, you know, driving. OK, you're an artist, her mother says. Am I? George says, since when? And is that a moral conundrum? Ha, ha, her mother says, humour me, imagine that you're an artist. This conversation is happening last May when George's mother is still alive, obviously. She's been dead since September. Now it's January, to be more precise. It's just past midnight on New Year's Eve, which means it has just become the year after the year in which George's mother died. George's father is out. It is better than him being at home, standing maudlin in the kitchen or going round the house switching things off and on. Henry is asleep. She just went in and checked on him. He was dead to the world, though not as dead as the word dead literally means when it means, you know, dead. This will be the first year her mother hasn't been alive since the year her mother was born. That is so obvious that it is stupid even to think it, and yet so terrible that you can't not think it both at once. Anyway, George is spending the first minutes of the new year looking up the lyrics of an old song. Let's twist again. Lyrics by Cal Mann. The words are pretty bad. Let's twist again like we did last summer. Let's twist again like we did last year. Then there's a really bad rhyme, a rhyme that isn't, properly speaking, even a rhyme. Do you remember when things were really humming? (laughs) Humming doesn't rhyme with summer. The line doesn't end in a question mark. And is it meant to mean literally do you remember that time when things smelt really bad? Then, let's twist again, twisting time is here, or as all the sites say, twist-in time. At least they've used an apostrophe, the George from Before her Mother Died says. I do not give a fuck about whether some site on the internet attends to grammatical correctness, the George from After says. That before and after thing is about mourning, is what people keep saying. They keep talking about how grief has stages. There's some dispute about how many stages of grief there are. There are three, or five, or some people say seven. It's quite like the songwriter actually couldn't be bothered to think of words. Maybe he was in one of the three, five or seven stages of mourning too. Stage nine or 23 or 123 or ad infinitum because nothing will ever not be like this again. In this stage, you will no longer be bothered with whether song words mean anything. In fact, you will hate almost all songs. But George has to find a song to which you can do this specific dance. It being so apparently contradictory and meaningless is no doubt a bonus. It will be precisely why the song sold so many copies and was such a big deal at the time. People like things not to be too meaningful. Okay, I'm imagining George in the passenger seat last May in Italy says exactly the same time as George at home in England the following January stares at the meaninglessness of the words of an old song. Outside the car window, Italy unfurls round and over them so hot and yellow it looks like it's been sandblasted. In the back, Henry snuffles lightly, his eyes closed, his mouth open. The band of the seatbelt is over his forehead because he is so small. You're an artist, her mother says, and you're working on a project with a lot of other artists and everybody on the project is getting the same amount salary-wise but you believe that what you're doing is worth more than everyone on the project, including you. Is getting paid. So you write a letter to the man who's commissioned the work and you ask him to give you more money than everybody else is getting. Am I worth more? George says. Am I better than the other artists? Does that matter? Her mother says. Is that what matters? Is it me or is it the work that's worth more? George says. Good, keep going, her mother says. Is this real? George says. Is it hypothetical? Does that matter? her mother says. Is this something that already has an answer in reality, but you're testing me with the concept of it, though you already know perfectly well what you yourself think about it, George says. Maybe, her mother says. But I'm not interested in what I think. I'm interested in what you think. You're not usually interested in anything, I think, George says. That is so adolescent of you, George, her mother says. I am adolescent, George says. Well, yes, that explains that then, her mother says. There's a tiny silence, still okay, but if she doesn't give in a bit and soon, George knows that her mother, who has been prickly unpredictable and misery-faced for weeks now about there being trouble in the paradise otherwise known as her friendship with that woman, Lisa Goliard, will get first of all distant, then distinctly moody and ratty. Is it happening now or in the past, George says. Is the artist a woman or a man? Do either of those things matter, her mother says. Does either, George says, either being singular. Mea maxima, her mother says. I just don't get why you won't commit ever, George says, and that doesn't mean what you think it means. If you say it without the culpa, it just means I'm the most, or I'm the greatest, or to me the greatest belongs, or my most. (laughs) It's true, her mother says, I'm the most greatest, but the most greatest what? Past or present, George says, male or female, it can't be both, it must be one or the other. Who says? Why must it? Her mother says. (laughs)
1: so much too for the price of one there. Do you think you will always read them in the same order or no, will you try to replicate the kind of madness that we have to go through of juggling them around at will?
0: What, what do you mean? Me as a person, will I read them? When you
1: read them, when you read aloud?
0: No, no, I'll just ask whoever which one someone would like me to start with because it is, it's random. You know, the book. The, the book you, if you buy this book, the book you'll get will start with one of those starts and that will be the start you're stuck with in a way because we are stuck with the stories that we get given but the very notion that there's another version just at the back of it, you know, a known version, just means that things it just it's, it's more than resonating. It's, it's something about the possibility that just sits behind a given version of things.
1: That's kind of how the book sort of started. I mean, yeah. I know that it is never, I'm sure that it is never easy for a novel to take root. I mean, it must be rare, Cheers. those Cheers. moments. Uh, those moments when a book comes sort of fully formed. I mean, I should think they're few and far between. Yeah. But this one had a sort of, quite a kind of wiggly genesis,
0: didn't it? Well, it came from, the, the, often the thing with a novel is that it'll start with a structure. Um, I think I think cause novels have to be so structural, they start quite physically. And so I had a, a notion, just from, from having been thinking about the, the, the structure of frescoes, actually. I was thinking about the, the the notion that there's, a fresco is actually part of a wall. And, you know, if you take it off the wall, you're damaging the wall. But when they did take the frescoes off the walls to um, restore them, they, started, they had begun to find ways, to, to, particularly in the 20th century, to restore things very well and, and very skillfully. And they began to take frescoes off the walls, but particularly when they had been damaged by the floods in Florence in the 60s. They, they sent a whole, I mean, a, an exhibition of frescoes. Can you imagine? Without actually lifting a wall and sending the whole wall, how was this possible? Anyway, when they took them off the walls with this fantastic skin and glue, uh, processes a couple of different processes depending on your fresco they found these under drawings underneath and the under drawings often were the same as the frescoes sometimes they were a little bit different and sometimes they were nothing like the fresco on the top at all so then I, I thought my god people have been looking at that fresco for 500 years the thing has been underneath the whole time nobody's been able to see it but it's been there, it's been there, it's been there invisible the whole time waiting and so um, the, the, this notion of the structural thing of the surface story with the understory, I think I, I began to wonder if it was possible to make that into a, a narrative form um, so I'd so written Artful which is the last book I did which was a, a series of essays um, uh, which had come from some lectures I did at a university and I, I was in doing a podcast with Simon Prosser, my editor at Penguin and I said to Simon on the way out the door do you think it would be possible to make a book which has two parts and then you can you know split the two parts and you can bring the book out in two different versions one that starts with one part and one that starts with the other part the other half and he, he went yeah yeah I think so I'll check for you that you know we could actually do it you know technically and uh, uh, Leah who was the publicity person who was there went oh that's a great idea and then the the man who was recording the podcast said that's a good idea it's like a <laughs> like a palimpsest and I was like okay so immediately it was an idea that appealed to all four of us one two three four of us in the room and then um and then uh, three of us in the room and then one two three I can't remember how many of us there was in the room anyway anyway everybody had liked the idea in a way that I thought I wasn't actually mad so then I went away thinking okay so if I if I think about that structure I wonder what will come
1: it's four if we count you
0: it's four if we count me yes thank you
1: um I mean at the time counting
0: yourself is hard
1: at the time you were writing another book weren't you you were you know there was another book that you oh, I, were working on and I, not, I No, you know, I
0: started the I knew I wanted to make this double this double structure so I started writing a book and I got quite far with it um I got about 100 pages 90 pages into it um and the whole time I kept thinking I'm doing this wrong you know but then I would look at the pros and the prose would be okay and I would think it's okay you know maybe I should just keep going with this I'm just being an idiot I should just you know let it be and and then I kept waking up feeling guilty, and I didn't know, you know, know, why. And then, and then you know, you had one of those moments where you actually do run into, you know, a, a point where you have to just do the thing that you're avoiding. And I knew that I would have to do a lot of research <laughs> about, you know, Renaissance Italy, about which I know, knew, because now I know lots actually, about which I knew almost nothing. So I thought, no, I'm just being an idiot. I have to do this book properly. And I, and the, the, at which point the voice of one of the halves of this book just came to my head and I had to go with it. You discover,
1: basically,
0: yeah.
1: by chance, by opening a magazine one day, Francesco del Cosa.
0: Francesco del Cosa. I, I knew that this book would be about frescoes, obviously, because it, there would be something in it that would be about the painting structure and also the very material structure of, of pictures, which are made with eggs and skin and teeth and you know, boiled um, herbs and rocks and they're, they're, they're made so physically, pictures, that we see and they last for all those years because they're actually made of what we're made of. They're made minerally. Um, so I knew there would be, there would be a, it would be about a picture and, you know, there, and there, would be, there would be somewhere in it, it would, would be about frescoes. And I was wondering, well, what will it be? Will it be, I'll have, make it something you know reasonably well you know, so that I know it, because, you know, I, again, I, like I say, I'm, I'm not a great expert on, on art before the 20th century. Really. I'm not much of an expert on the 20th at all. And then I opened a copy of Freeze one day and uh, there was a beautiful blue picture of a man wearing white rags, which just made me go, oh my God, what on earth is that? And I looked at it and saw it was in, this fresco, this fresco was in a series of frescoes in a palace in Ferrara. So I called up the stairs to say, oh, let's go to this place and see these. And we did. And the this artist who had done this particular part of the fresco, his name was Francesco del Cossa, about whom almost nobody Knows, much, knows anything? I mean, there's a lot online. If you if you speak Italian, there's more online than than in anything else. There's a little bit in German, but in English, there's almost nothing about Del Cossa. Um, uh, in, in, there's a couple of books, none in English, about Del Cossa. So um, I began to to gather what I could from the surface of surface information by which we live now. And that was an interesting experience in itself, to come to this old thing by, this, by the surface internet, to see the ways in which it came to the surface, and also the ways in which the story of this extraordinary artist, do you want to tell like, mm, Yeah, um, happened. He was, he was uh, an artist in the court of Ferrara who was not working for the court of Ferrara. His father was, as far as we can gather, a stonemason or a brickmaker. Um, some people say an architect, some people say a builder made bricks. It's hard to tell what he was exactly. Um, Del Cossa had no uh, training that we can find about. Um, but this artist did these frescoes in the 14, late 1460s in this beautiful palace in Palazzo called the, uh, in, in Ferrara called the Palazzo Schifanoia, which means, if you translate it literally, the Palace of uh, Banishing Boredom. It's a pleasure palace, the palace of not being bored, you know, uh, and uh, these beautiful things were made for the Duke Borso d'Este at the time. And Alcossa had a name by this point that we can gather because he asked the Duke for more money uh, in a letter um, and he wrote to the Duke saying, I have a name and you're... Paying me ten bolognini per square foot, the same as you're paying everybody else who's working on this, and they're all basically, you know, workshop uh, assistants. So you're paying me at the same rate as assistants, although I have a name, and uh, you know, and also I'm using really good colours that have cost me a fortune, and also I study every day. So if you want to give me more, that would be nice. But if you want to, you know, give me more secretly, you can give me a gift. But if you want to give me more and everybody else can have more too, that's fine too. But if you, you know, I'm sure there's a way we can work this out if you'd like to give me more. <laughs> At the bottom of which letter the duke wrote in pencil, "Pay him the same as everybody else." <laughs> the estes fall from power. The palazzo gets whitewashed over. It becomes a storeroom for tobacco, and it becomes a barn, you know, filled with animals. One day in the 1840s, some of the whitewash comes off the wall, and people see these faces peeking out uh, of this. Room, So they take the whitewash off and they find these frescoes and everybody goes, oh, new frescoes by Tura, the great artist of the of the uh, beginning of the Renaissance in Ferrara. Tura, it's just fantastic. We find these works that nobody's ever seen before. 40, 50 years later, in goes a historian to the Modena Archive and finds a letter. Dear Duke, my name is the artist Francesca del Cosa and I made these pictures in one part of this room and I'd like you to pay me more money. This man who had just disappeared from history because Vasari missed him out, Vasari got his name wrong. Vasari, who is one of the the, the, the sources for us knowing anything about the, the, particularly the, the early re- Renaissance painters, had lost Del Cosa and called him Lorenzo Costa instead. And so Del Cosa just disappeared off the face of the earth until they found his letter asking for more money. And that is the first proof of anyone, any artist, ever asking for their worth that we have. It's also possibly the first proof of artistic pride and vanity that we have. So it's, it's both those things at once. And in this story, you've got this man who did these works, and they are gorgeous. I can't tell you what they're like. Um, after which, the man who found the letter, Venturi, Adolfo Venturi, and then Roberto Longhi, the great Renaissance scholar, found other works in the world and could say, this is Del Cossa. this is Del Cossa." So now we have about 16, 17 great paintings that we know are probably Del Cossa, And they are so beautiful. And there are only that many. That's all we've got. And you know, he, he, you know, just if you if you Google him, you can see them. If you go to the Palazzo Schifanoia, you can really see them. It's like the most. It is like the most beautiful. It's one of the most beautiful places I've ever been.
1: You've described it as sort of just being stopped in your tracks, just seeing that one picture on the, the page of a magazine. So, so that, that was, became you know the sto- a story yeah. that you wanted to tell. Mm. Um, and I know from you know what you've said about frescoes, you were also just really interested in this idea of the understory that's always with the story, that's always with uh, the so. thing that we see first? I
0: think so. I think every sentence we say has an under sentence. I think everything we say has the under sentence of silence, of so the thing that we're, things that we're not saying. I think that every story we tell has another story alongside it, which is, which is hardly... Uh, realised or which we don't want to be realised. Every novel you read has got something in it which isn't being said and that's why it's a fantastically gripping novel because it's not being said. So it's, you know, the articulation of something is always about what's not being articulated or the missing which is there all the same.
1: What is also going on in this book is this idea of the subversive in both these stories Mm -hmm. that go in and out of one another. There are echoes and little snippets of information about each of the stories in the other one. And in all your books there is this subversive character, this character from the outside who's just sort of blowing okay. everything
0: up. Okay, well, can you imagine if I've been looking at frescos for months and months thinking, oh, oh, I wonder, you know, this is a really interesting one, that's really, lo- that's really beautiful, it's really beautiful, and then the picture I see which just blows my mind is of a worker and he is in rags and he is the most powerful figure that I have Probably ever seen in my life in a, in a painting, and when you go to this room, it is all full of the story of the duke's life for the year because the duke was about to be made a duke, and the pope was coming specially to honour him. But the most powerful figure in that whole room is this: is the worker, is the man in rags. It's and it's it's, it's the, the idea that this artist, who is now asking for more money was working this satire right the way through everything he was painting anyway, because the, 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 the paintings are full of a kind of satirising of, as well as a celebrating of, the richness of Ferrara at the time. So there's all, again, I mean, the subversive, in a way, is always close to the versive, you know? It's just they're, they're, they're partners.
1: Yeah? Just, just tell us a bit about these people in your books. I'm thinking of amber in the accidental miles in there but for these people who just come to your door and do strange things i
0: don't think they're subversive i think most people come to your door and do strange things i mean you know i mean we 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 all we all live lives which which you know we which can tend towards normality but actually if we look at them we see the madness that we live in and we and we, we live in every day and we all live the kinds of madness which are agreeable madnesses with each other all the time so i don't know that i see Miles is anything other than sane, you know, <laughs> rather than but subversive. he's a
1: disruptive presence. It's what it... he does is disruptive to other people's lives, isn't
0: it? Well, they make it disruptive to their lives. I mean, Miles, what Miles does in that book is he goes upstairs in a dinner party and um, locks himself into a bedroom in a stranger's house and won't come out and stays there for a year. I mean, I don't think that's subversive. Or... <laughs> <laughs> well, it's an
1: awful dinner party, isn't it? We all have enormous sympathy with him.
0: will, <laughs> nonetheless... What dinner party would you not want to do that in? <laughs> it's to get it's to get past the. I mean, in the way that the novel the novel is a fantastic convention. I mean, it's wonderful. It does all the things that we need the novel to do, and that's what a satisfying novel is. But when it also does the things that we don't expect a novel to do, at the same time as allowing you the satisfactions of narrative, if it can do the things which are the under novel, as, as you know, the things the things which we're all you know past the convention, the things the things which remind us that things are just artificial. Mm. then we know that we're alive. We know that things are real. Just talk a bit, if
1: you can, about this idea of the novel and time. I think this is the most sort of
0: kind of
1: out there way that you're dealing with it in this book, but you actually, it goes through all your book, this (laughs) idea of the novel being tied to a chronology.
0: The very first novel, Tristram Shandy, tick-tock, tick-tock, the first thing that happens is a clock. Um, I'm not, you know, the first person to notice that, Margaret Atwood says it beautifully in uh, Negotiating with the Dead, where she talks about art as a constant, negotiation all art, but particularly the written uh, forms as a constant negotiation with the voice of the gone or t- the way that time in a way has f- flattened things, but at the same time has not lost these voices. the voices are all just there, we have to just hear them so uh, it's she you know she, she talks about how the novel is always a clock, and so does forster forster gets really frustrated in aspects of the novel by how in the novel there's always a clock and you have to stick to chronology. And it's all, I mean, even, he says, Virginia Woolf has had to stick to chronology. And although Gertrude Stein, Forster says, has taken the pocket watch and smashed it in a kind of act of bravura, and he admires the act of bravura, he says, well, that's it, it's just a broken clock. It's still the novel and it's still about a clock. You know, so we're, in a way, the novel is, I think the novel is really a form which is about time. But I also think that it's about Society. I think that if, if particularly, the English novel um, is, is really about stratifications in history and society and the ways in which we live socially, it's a it's a communal form. The novel. Um, I mean, you, you look at what Woolf could do with time and communality When you look at something like *The Waves*, she's still stuck to the the nine sections which is a kind of gestation period and she's still tucked to the one day which begins and ends in one full turn in the book even though you get all those lives lived in that single day it's very hard for us as human beings to escape time and also to escape consequence because sequence and consequence are linked and then Saramago, uh, when I was writing Artful, I was reading Saramago and, was, um, and he, he, he says in one of his books, how annoying it is always to be stuck with sequence and consequences. He says the thing about time and reality is that I can be lifting this glass and you can be sitting and turning that way and the person over there can be nodding or shaking their heads and someone else can be walking past the shop and all these things are happening at exactly the same time. Except as a novelist, you have to go, this happened, then this happened, then this happened, then this happened. He says it's infuriating that you can't just put them all together and just have, you know, simultaneity. But you can't. And if you try and do it, he says you'll still end up with a column. And the only people who can do it, he says, are opera singers. Because they can sing over each other. They can all, you know, <laughs> make the same noise at once. So there's, I mean, but the, but if you want the novel to, to go towards music, in a way, there are ways to, to make the novel go towards music. We only have to look at... Wolf and Sebald and the, the, kind of, the people who have Joyce and the remakers of the novel to know that there are ways to, to, do, to, to, to ask the novel to, to understand time human notions of time in which we look at us, we are, we are all ourselves all at once, we are, you know I am my 8 year old and my 60 year old and my, if I live that long, 80 year old self all at once, all the, all, the, all the selves which haven't happened yet I still am and all the ones which have, I am too so we live a simultaneity of ourselves dimensionally the novel can do that. You know? Well,
1: one of the ways it does it, I guess, is through voice, isn't it? It's by through yeah. polyphony, I suppose. And that's something, Usually. you know, that's yeah. happening in all of your books. Again, this idea of multiple voices, multiple yeah. viewpoints. Yeah. Um I, did, form. I, I wanted to ask you as well, we were having a conversation recently about modernism yeah which is what we talk about when we're not talking about light bulbs <laughs> light bulbs so and modernism are connected actually pretty pretty easily yeah. <laughs> and it was and you you know worked you know as an academic you did academic work into the into modernism in, in various aspects and i was just very struck by what you were talking about the idea of it actually not being this rather kind of sterile um, explosion, nihilistic sort of explosion of things, but a kind of celebration of the everyday.
0: I think so too. I think uh, this is this is the reason I didn't pass my thesis in the end, was because because I thought the modernism was a, a force of of creativity and joy, and my uh, um, thesis examiners didn't. Um, and you know, we're both right, is is I suppose what I would say then, because uh, to to me, in modernism and in the in those works which were coming out of such a a, a kind of wrenchingly changing time, people who wrote wanted to honour the ordinariness and the everydayness and the mundanity and the richness of us and of our lives all at once. So that the, the richness—I mean, a Hugh McDermott's glass of water, or the the richness of the um, the, the the single day in Dublin, or the um, a- astonishing, uh, al- almost too fulsome for Eliot richness of wandering along the beach, even though it was bare. Eliot still heard all the Renaissance echoes in you know in the beach. There, there was no, you know there was uh, modernism was a po- was a point at which all of those—I mean, it was a kind of simultaneity in itself yes mm-hmm. but then you know just shandy is a modernist novel and um and jane austen's a postmodernist. i mean you know those those those, those things don't they don't belong to chronologies they're not you know they're, they're not as cat- categorizable as as we, we imagine that they, or we're supposed to think they are
1: it does strike me and i'll just ask you this before we open up to questions because we must do that sure. um that what you're doing is sort of enacting your those feelings about modernism kind of all the time in your writing by making this space that is terribly expansive terribly malleable terribly welcoming to the reader despite its kind of language games the occasional kind of mystery and obliquity mm. that's sort of what it's doing it seems to me that's a pretty important part for you okay. of being a writer just making this welcome space
0: oh, i think it's just i think the thing of, I think I was excited by modernist writing uh, when I was young because it was the first writing that I felt had asked me to be, in, kind of, to be implicit, to be, to, be, to be part of it, so to be something to do with the making of it. And I, and I know that that does excite me, to, to hold a book in my hands and to be reminded that uh, I'm here too, and actually I'm here and I'm alive and a work which is however many centuries old as you know fresh gold and still fresh will make you feel that present and also make you feel that implicated um and that responsible there's something about again the communal act of the novel I think I think the novel it asks to be a kind of communal form it asks to ask to understand the world and us in it so I presume that's I think that's an answer to what you're saying Alex I think it's that's something I think it's something that I actually read in, in my own if I think if I if I think at all about what I'm doing which you can't because if you do you can't do it mm-hmm. yeah shall we open
1: up to sure. to, to have some questions from mm-hmm. the audience who would like we've got a roving mic there Hello. Hello. <clears throat> Hi. Hi. Uh, there's a uh, there's a study going on at Durham University at the moment about hearing voices. It's interdisciplinary so it's sort of it's about science but also about authors and whether they hear voices when they're writing. I oh, think okay. quite obvious. I was going to ask whether you did, but I'm probably not going to do that no, now. You
0: d- if yeah. you
1: if, if you do <laughs> if you do hear voices when you're writing, what do they what do they look like?
0: Where do they come from? They're absolutely ah. syntax. It's you know, the 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 point of the imagination, in a way, is to be open to beyond being beyond those people and selves beyond ourselves. I think I think it's the whole point of the imagination is to be is to be more than ourselves and to understand what it is. You know, to, to go beyond ourselves. The thing about the, the voice hearing when you write, when you're writing, to me, it's it's always come in sentence form. And literal sentence form, literally with its own syntax, so it's a very it's a very literal literary thing. Um, I don't know about the other kind because I haven't ever heard those other kinds of voices, in which people I know uh, hear at all sorts of different levels of mental uh, awareness and anguish. I mean, for this book, for instance, I, you know, for, by the time I knew I had to change it, it was because the voice had just kind of thunked into my head, you know, which was that oh, this is a mighty twisting thing, and then there was no avoiding that voice, and I had to get to grips with it, regardless of how artificial. It felt to me, and, f- and with with uh, the accidental, uh, a book which I wrote about ten years ago, I actually woke up in the middle of the night and wrote a page. And when I woke up, uh, the ne- you know went back to sleep, woke up the next morning and checked the page and thought, well, that's actually quite good. Um, yeah. I'll maybe see what I can do with it. And that I mean that did begin that did form the beginning of that novel, which was a surprise to me. Um, because I thought I was going to write something else, which actually, ha- also, you're onto something. It's actually happened in Hotel World as well, because um, I had thought I would write a book about a hotel structure, at which point in Thunked, A Voice from Elsewhere, it has something to do with having your ears open to the voices which do not get heard. Calvino says it beautifully at the end of um, Six Memos for the Next Millennium, when he says the, 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 if, you know, the writer's job is to hear the voices of the unheard, and the voices that haven't, haven't even got voice he says the things which the th- not just the voices of the people and the live things which are, can't be heard or for some reason they're not being heard um, but the voices of concrete and trees the, you know, the, and so writing is really about voice but voice is really about syntax and when you're talking
1: about, can I just add yeah. a ride mm-hmm. when you're talking about hearing the syntax mm-hmm. are you also hearing it when it's being disrupted and you're making all sorts of Linguistic jokes and, and games out of things.
0: Well, any voice that you're speaking to that you're having, if you've got a connection with, will be making a joke. I mean, you know, that's how we're, we're human beings. We make jokes all the time. We communicate with each other on you know myriad levels with one phrase. So the, the phrase itself will be going in four different directions at once. If you're speaking to somebody and you're you know you're you're marking your humanity as it were, rather than being official or full of or or, or only um, authoritative.
1: Thank you for that question. Should we have another? Yeah, too. yeah, And if there are voices that sort of come from elsewhere, as it were, does that presuppose that you have one that you recognise as being more, like, your own, that's maybe more stable over
0: time? Or I don't know the answer to that question. I, I, don't, I, I think I, if I thought there was something that was my voice, I would stop writing because it would be frightful. I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, I, have, I have enough of my own voice. You know, in my life. So no, it's, a, it's really, really about getting the voice of whoever the character is, right? And that, that includes third person, because third person and second person are also um, expressions of first person. Um, and a, so a third person piece like George's is George telling George's story. You know, that's what, that's, what, that's what that is. We all tell ourselves our versions of ourselves um, all the time even though you know, we might not do it in third-person form quite like in a novel, but we, we, we dictate to ourselves our narratives. And third-person, one way or another, will be a dictating of, of a given narrative and will always be every bit as sly as first-person and inexpressibly more useful to a writer because first-person basically means, am I telling the truth or am I lying? But third-person does both and then does all these other things at the same time. You know, It's, it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's a complex, exciting form, third-person. Um, so
1: I think if there's no omniscient third person, which okay. obviously we don't really have any more in the postmodern
0: era. Okay. Except we you... think we do. We all believe we do. Well, that's what I was going to ask. Then we just, you know, we read third person and we think that's, well, that's the given story. So uh, you know, unless, you know, you or I... You know, slightly tweak that so that people know there is. It just isn't just the given story. There's something else going on with everything we think of as the given story. Um, then we'll take it as the given story because we like stories, human beings, and and, and stories comfort us, and we need them to be comforting as well. So,
1: that, yeah, I'm going to ask a follow-up to okay. that. which I think is sort of connected with you which is that are you saying sort of a writer can't really kind of surrender their authority? In a way, you can't actually. However much you might try to, you are still writing the story and writing the book. Oh. I mean, I feel what you're trying to do always is to do that, but I don't know how much it's kind of possible. I
0: don't know. Do you know? I I always think when you know, I've actually finished something, did I do that? It just, you know, it really doesn't feel like. I mean, I looked and I know I did, and I know that. I, but 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 you know it because you've done it rhythmically. Because if if a sentence works or a, or a concept is working in a book, it's working rhythmically in a way that you know you just know by ear is right, as if. Um, as if you were listening to something and the beat was wrong, and you just—if the beat is right, then the thing is probably right. And if something in the beat has picked up something over here in another mm-hmm. beat, then probably you have to just trust it. It's a matter of, again, as that would say, working in the dark, um, being blind to whatever it is that you're working with until, you know, at the end of it, you put the lights on and think, okay, does that hold? Will it hold? Have I done that okay? Is it—is it, you know, have I delivered it okay? But I tend to think it's more like you. It's more like excavation. I mean, I don't feel like I've written any of the books I've written. Um, I feel like they were, they, they just, you know, you have to deliver the thing. And it's always in dialogue with the book itself. You're always in dialogue with the work. And if you want it to do something, it just won't do it. You know, if you, if you want to, you'll just wake up feeling guilty, you know, until you do the thing that the book is asking you to do. And then you have to work with it so that you get it to work. So you get it to, to have those rhythms and those beats and meet, you know. Do have another question? Um, I um, was thinking also about what you wrote about on reflection, about a screen and in front of it and behind it and also about the notion of a chronotope what that uh, Bakhtin um, talks about, for example. Okay. Like, I mean, something completely different, but like in the 19th century, like Paris was mm, in part defined by all the revolutions that, that went on and in the 20th century, it was m- much more fragmented and the way you use time and places it just makes it all come so so much alive and um and and that's fantastic and and i was wondering what you think about this notion chronotope um okay you yeah i don't know because um, I don't know anything about Bakhtin and I don't know anything about the notion but I do know that as soon as you have a voice on a the page then something has come alive and, if, and it doesn't matter when or where or who it is the voice itself which will have a context because all voice does as soon as you have two, one word two words in the dark it's a context and it's a voice and it will have markers around that which will tell you about it um, and will tell you something about the person who is speaking. And so therefore you have to go with that and you have to allow that to be the thing that develops. Um, so it's, uh, because, because, because voice is always harnessed to time. But we don't have to, you know, be harnessed to just one voice. So that's, you know, the point is that voice, I mean, again, voice can rise through time. And, and you know, time itself is, is uh, again, it's communal. You know? is Miloš says in that fantastic poem that you are not opening a door and letting a tiger in. Actually, it's a a poem called Ars Poetica. And he he says, he says, you know, uh, we go about our work hoping that if we do open the window or the door, the thing that flies in is not going to be, you know, it's not going to eat you. you
1: Let's have another question. Thank you. Yes. Um, Can you talk a little bit about your sort of writing routine? Okay. And if you're one of those writers who believes that you have to sort of write every day Mm -hmm. or yeah, just like your process. Sure, basically. my process.
0: Um, I, I do think that when you're working on something, you should, you should probably try and do something every day. You probably won't... It, you might not be able to use it. Um, and in fact, it might be nothing to do with anything, and you put it aside, and then maybe five months later or five years later, down the line, you can use it. Actually, I'm a very lazy person, and f- f- when I'm not working on something, I do almost nothing except read. Just read and read and read the piles of books around the house. Um, but when I am working on something... You know, it's the magic thing about work is if you just sit down, you think you've got nothing. You think, there's, you think there's nothing in the world. There's nothing left. There's nothing you can say. It's turgid. You can't do anything. And then you start to do something. And then a sentence will work some kind of a, a movement on a page between rhythm and words. And then something has happened. And then you just have to, fo- I mean, you have to actually be open to that, follow it. It's a process of, you know, kind of, it's 50-50, I think, instinct and edit. You let it go, do the thing it wants to do, whatever it is you're writing then you look at it to see what it 's doing rather than make you know, make you know, just make decide what you 're going to bring to it. You look at it to see what it wants you to do or what it 's doing and you can see all sorts of things which are useful if you just look at a piece that you 've written you know if you, if you just sat and wrote anything you know in it there would be a repetition of words which would tell you where the writing self and you wanted to go so it 's a process of uh, tris- trusting yourself to your own instinct, checking that instinct to make sure that you 're picking up on it and then seeing where it will go from there. So it's its a a—it's a process of constant edit, actually, of instinct, then edit, instinct, then edit. So by the time I've finished a, a draft, it's usually the, the final draft because I've edited it so toughly to get to the end of it that um, I'll go back and I'll do another edit and I'll maybe do another edit and that will be it because it will have been so forced through whatever the mincing machine of editing is to get rid of everything that you don't want. So the, pr- the process is just basically that, sitting down, hoping something will come, looking to see what came, editing it. Apart from the days when I don't do anything. <laughs> uh, because it's very important not to do anything, if you write, right. It's very, very important to just look out the window. It's very important to sit in the garden. It's really, really important to get kittens. It's. <laughs> It's incredibly important to have, to have a freedom in your brain, which, which means that if you don't feel like working that day, do something else, go for a walk. And if you are stuck, this is another good thing. Jim, James, James Kelman says, if, if you're stuck with a book, take a character for a walk. Well, I think just go for a walk yeah. yourself. Because, because if you go for a walk, something happens in your brain because it's peripatetic. and you know, you just, Whatever it is that you're stuck with will just shift and it'll open up and you'll think you'll suddenly go okay I know what to do with that or I could try that which means you come back from the walk healthier and happier yes Um,
1: listening to you it sounds like you write to give people pleasure or an experience that they might not otherwise have and I was wondering what makes you proud of books that you've written? Is it being nominated for Booker? (laughs) Is it the number of people who read it and therefore get enjoyment from it? Is it a feeling that you have inside yourself? Or or what is it that makes you feel like, oh, yes, I've done what I wanted to by being a writer?
0: Oh, being a writer. (laughs) (laughs) I never, ever, ever feel proud of anything, ever. I always think I've done it wrong. Except for this one, which peculiarly because I don't feel responsible for it at all, because I wrote it very fast and I wrote it very, very, very fast, I think. And also because it comes from this source, which is this Renaissance source, which for me is a new source, which means it has a kind of deep root in something else. I'm actually rather amazed that, you know, like, that, that that was possible and it was possible to, to, to kind of turn it around and do that with the kind of book I usually write, which is not like this at all. So I'm surprised and you know, kind of slightly prideful of myself for actually having read a book about the Renaissance. Um, the, the booker stuff is a complete fluke. Um, you never feel proud about that, but you feel completely lucky. You kind of go, oh, my God, how did that happen? That's not pride. That's just, you know, that's like someone being very nice to you in a shop. <laughs> You know, when you, when you go in to buy something and, and, they, and they're really nice to you and you come out thinking, oh, I feel like, oh, I feel nice, you know. So, so um, the, the, I, I don't show very many people what I'm doing while I'm doing it, but at the end I show two or three people, and uh, then you have to hope that it's all right for them and I hope it's all right for me, and then you just let it go out into the world. And then you kind of hope it will just hold. And
1: do you never go back, and do you ever
0: reread uh, what no, you've done? No, I've, I've never re- reread anything except I had to reread Hotel World for a radio program. I had to do Jim Nochty. And then I just was annoyed by it because you can't actually read the books that you write. You can't read them. I don't know if anyone who is a writer here will know. You can't read what you've written because you just keep going. Oh, did I do that right? Oh, that was. Did I? Does that work? Does that link up later? I can't remember if I did that right. All you do is check the mechanics of it. You can't read it like you read. A, uh, you know, like I love to read. You can't. You can't read your own stuff like that. In fact, I was rereading the accidental for something, and I just got bored. So. <laughs> I had, to, I had to do a, it. Was a, it was a free giveaway for a university, and I, had to, I got about two thirds of the way through, and thought, "I think I can remember the rest." <laughs> <laughs> but you do tend to know your books rhythmically very, very well. So that if someone misquotes them somewhere, then you, you know you know they've misquoted. So there's something about this very osmosis thing. It means you can't read them. You can't have that enjoyment. You know.
1: We have another question. Yes, just here.
0: Okay, so this is slightly random question, but I'm fascinated in your writing by sort of your theory of extremes. So um, something needs to be subversive and versive simultaneously. And you might talk so much about someone who's Really living, and that brings them to death. Right? You're always sort of teetering the line between two things that are entirely opposite, but they seem to define one another. Yeah. So, I guess two questions from that are: How can you do that without combusting, or without like? We're <laughs> but we're all we're here. <laughs> None of us is combusting, and we're all living all the time between all, all of the opposites. All of us, and we don't we don't combust. We hold together rather fluidly, rather well. Yeah, that's true. But yeah. just the idea of of being able to to record that without sort of digging yourself into a hole. Or going into a circle with this is this, but this is also this, but that's because it is this originally. And so, I'm just really fascinated by by your your theory on that. Or does it just happen naturally, and you just let it go, and then just don't reread it, or else you might get annoyed, or what? <laughs> um, I don't think I get a choice about that. I do. I, I would love to write a novel which which was very straightforward and which did the, the straightforward things that say. You know, great writers like Toybin can do with a straightforward story which is full of voice and full of sophistication at the same time as a very straightforward story and unfortunately for me I can't do that, I can't write that kind of classic thing, I'd love to be able to, I'm going to try at some point in my life to do it but I have a feeling whatever it is will we'll ricochet off something else and then I will be left with whatever that structure is, so I don't know is the answer to your question it's, a, it's, it's, not, it's not a theory but I do think, as human beings, we are held all the time between life and death. All the time. Every day. And we're held between silence and voice. And we're held between ourselves and our not-selves. Just in the single self. I mean, But we don't combust. We are incredible. We are, you know, I don't, I don't want to sound like that Boopa advert from all those years ago where she goes, you're marvellous. But actually, we are marvellous. and that Without you know, private health schemes, we are... <laughs> we are really... Uh, human beings are astonishing from cell upwards and from below from smaller than cell upwards we're astonishing and the things we do and we make in the world are, are exciting and astonishing and nothing like us
1: i would just add a bit to that though and on a more sort of practical level i think one of the ways that you do sort of ground things because i think kind of almost what you're saying is if you just had a story where all you were reflecting on was kind of opposites and things sort of disappearing into okay. sort of decreasing circles kind of thing Um, But your stories always seem to me to be like fables or fairy tales on the one hand. And then there's, bang, a bit of something very contemporary, very political, very funny, very sort of throwaway, but of
0: the moment. And I think you kind of anchor things. (laughs) But fairy tales are political. I mean, they really are. They're they're deeply political. They've never been anything other than political. Nursery rounds are political. Fairy tales are political. All the stories we tell ourselves as human beings for all the reasons we tell ourselves are grounded in our humanity at whatever time they come from and we'll all and if they are good stories will work at whatever time we read them precisely because of that because mm-hmm. they'll always kind of kind of cue into something which is an us now
1: i think we've got time for one one last question yep two in fact we're gonna have two i can't can't turn yeah. either of you away carry on i mean i mean i'm not sure if this is a question because i don't think in questions but i I think it's. I think there's a question in there. Is that
0: it? The question. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's about that. It's
1: just returning to the sort of visual in the work because I think that's so important, and um, and how you've talked about the fresco is so fantastic, but also hearing what you were saying, what the idea of time and and sequence, and so I was just wondering if is it that the fresco works as a is it that that visually you have a, you can you can have. I'm wondering, can you have a simultaneous time visually, in a way that the novel is, the novel and films, yes. you know, have yes. have to work with sequence? And so I'm sort of interested in what the pull to the visual.
0: I think the pull to the visual is is because we live in this century and uh, I've lived a lot in the last century. I think it's because in, those, in these centuries we have become visual as a species in a way that we never were before, that was, was different before. I mean, now we get our information visually almost all the time and it comes, as you were saying, through a screen or via something in front of us which is between us and reality. I'm fascinated by that, the thing which is between us and reality which is visual which is which you know because the, the visual is one of the strongest of our senses and as human beings we live by our senses and um so when we rely on that information to tell us or to so we understand where we are in the world we are getting so much information and to be able to understand it our brains are having to speed up and be incredibly syntactically complex in a way that our species hasn't had to be before so we are changing as a species for those reasons, number one. Uh, Number two, in that single visual, you can have so many layers and layers and layers and layers of things because that's what perspective is. It's when we lose perspective that it gets scary or that it gets, you know, when when perspective comes down to the, the, the two dimension or the single dimension that as human beings we will miss it and and we and we'll respond and we'll do something about it, which is why it'd be interesting to see what happens with the screen and the real world i, would, I don't know what will happen to us or how how we'll use it but i'm I'm, I'm kind of heartened by the, the young being able to deal on fifty screens at once and still be doing their homework and watching something else over here and you know writing a love poem because the things which we are will actually i don't think they'll ever change uh, and th- those generations coming up will simply with any luck, will simply take on board that new that new t- technology of information um, and be as multiplicit and as layered with it as those frescoes are, actually, in that place, which is that they show the earth, the, the sky, the heavens, the so-called heavens, the mythical heavens, and at the same time they're doing perspective which goes for miles and miles and miles so that you can see the flat surface and you can see what's beyond it. And as, as human beings, we love we love dimension, we love stratification, we love the... We love to know that it's more than the surface. And that's why I think, that's, I, think I, I still think that's where this book comes from. It's because we do love to know. We love to think that there's more than, we know there's more than, we know there's more than the surface. just have to touch it to know it's, you know, there's more than that.
1: And just, there's our last question three rows back. Um, I think you did already kind of answer my question a little bit, but I was going to ask how in a lot of your books there's often a, teenage or kind of preteen voice and I was wondering how you kind of engage with that authentically especially in a kind of contemporary
0: age when it's that kind of age is obsessed with Maybe technology or being okay. contemporary and a kind of rejection of the past in some way. So how I how I um, engage with it? Yeah. What do you mean? Do you mean how do I create those people?
1: Yeah, I guess not so. being
0: one. Mean. <laughs> 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 well, I suppose
1: it would be in this book the character of George's George. mother yeah. to you know creating these sort of things. <laughs> or that she why are drawn to that age
0: specifically? Like, mm. is it because you're okay. going through a time of change in that? Place, or the <laughs> <subversive, laughs> Oh no, I no, mean. <laughs> <curious. laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, no, it's okay. That was the whiskey, not, not the actual menopause. Uh, um, um, as human beings, we uh, are supposed to be child, then adolescent. Adolescence is reasonably new in the human uh, pantheon, um, the panoply of being us. Child, adolescent, adult, old. Okay, that's it. That's it over. Okay, I actually do all of them. Um, but people do like my, my teenagers, and I think it's because we're living in a teenage time and that they're really drawn to the child characters and the teenagers because we are actually living in a time which, in which we haven't surpassed our 17-year-old selves. It just, it's, it's, but you know, if you look at my books, they're, they're, you know, the characters are, there are adults in there too, men and women and old people and very young children, all of them. But the teenagers are particularly interesting to us now, I think, culturally because they are between codification you know, it's, it's coming at them. It's coming for them. The thing which you're supposed to be and freedom and openness. And when you, have, when you have, you know, the, the child self uh, is before that thing. When you're coming up as a child to the thing you're supposed to be, you see the supposed to be's. You don't quite understand them. You get to teenage and you think, that's what I'm supposed to be. That's what I'm supposed to be. That's what it is. Or that's what I'm supposed to be. That's what, I'm be. That's what it is. And you get either comfort or diversion and or... Um, I uh, you know or you react against it, probably all three. The teenage self is a fluid self. I mean you can see it in something like uh, a book which I love, which is carson McCullers's member of the wedding, which has to be one of the most political of novels that I have ever read um, it 's all about color and fixity, and um, it starts with a kind of Repetition of the word green, which is a, it comes to a kind of illness or sickness, and a repetition colour against all about colours. So the the book is about the colour stratification in the in the states of who, who gets who gets to have power and who doesn't, and the word queer, and so you have this point at which. What does queer mean? Oh, the things it's supposed to mean, it can't mean, so I'll make it mean something else. So you have this constant argument in that character who's coming to teenage years and who's about to be flattened by them of massive voice and massive understanding. And yet, you know, here comes the thing which will... And she's looking at it. It's just about, here comes the chopper to chop off her head. And it's, it's a questioning point, And it's a morally questioning place as well, the, the teenage years. As a child, things are very clear morally. That's right, that's wrong. It's very clear to see. But as a teenager... It's, you begin to understand the grey area, and at the same time, you don't. You're know, like, you know. But as adults, we you know, we've mo- we've moved into whatever it is the shape we're supposed to take, the narrative, the third person we're supposed to take. So, I think I'm I'm drawn to it as a constant source of revelation about us and our time and the time that we're living in. Because you know, ask a teenager, and they'll tell you you know what it's like, and at the same time, they'll be doing all this <laughs> <laughs> immense versatility.
1: Ali, thank you so much. Hey, I think probably everyone in this room, although you say it is fluke, we've all got every finger and toe crossed for the Booker Prize. Right. I'm going to ask your publisher, who's here now, you've got to do another edition called Ali Fresco. That's what we've got to call your book. if That's a special Booker winning edition. Um, I just want to thank if you so much. If I win, so I'll take much. everybody
0: here.
1: <gasps> <gasps> <to> Where? Ferrara.
0: <gasps> to, see, to see the frescoes. If you buy a
1: book. You know, <laughs> <laughs> I still don't think that, my God, no wonder you're not a maths person, are you? That doesn't work. <laughs> <laughs> Annie, thank you so much. You've been wonderful. Thank you to our audience, and thank you very much. Yeah, thank, you. thank you for joining us for this London Review Bookshop event. For more, visit our website at www.londonreviewbookshop.co.uk or search for the London Review Bookshop on iTunes.